Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please open it to the book of Jude. It's a way uh, for us to begin or continue on our lesson in Jude. Uh, I would like to read um, not just these verses this morning, but also from last week. Uh, it's a way for us to just remember the things that we've learned. So with that, Jude 1. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Lord, we come before you the opportunity and privilege to learn more about you. Lord, we want to have a deeper knowledge of your word and a greater reverence for you. May your name be exalted in all that we do, and may your name be known to the ends of the earth. Lord, be with us this morning as we want to be equipped to earnestly contend for the faith. We ask you, your precious son's name. Amen. It has been said that you can trace all of American history based on the war that it's been in. If you follow American history, the majority of its existence has been based on one war after another, beginning with the Revolutionary War, to the War of 1812, then the Civil War, then to the two world wars, to Vietnam, to the Cold War, to even all the current wars that we're fighting today. You can say that you can trace all of American history based on the war that is fought. And it's always believed that the reason why Americans are always fighting is because they want to preserve the way of life. One must constantly fight in order to protect a certain belief, a certain ideology, and a certain truth. Now, although this saying is often associated with America, I actually believe that it happens to every nation in every area of life. Every country sets out to have war because, they, because that country holds a certain ideology and they operate in those ideologies and they, can, and they call those ideology truth. And this is why people fight, because they want to determine what truth is. If a nation believes that they should conquer the entire world, that is the truth that they hold to. If a certain nation believes that uh, there should be uh, uh, 
liberty, then they will make sure that that is protected. I say this as an illustration to show the constant nature of war. For the Christians, we understand that our war is not like the nations of the world. As a Christian, as Christians, our weapon for war in this war of truth is the word of God, whereas other nations in the world fight with weapons to just impose their will onto others. Our war as Christians begins all the way back. It goes beyond the existence of America. Our war began back in the garden. The first trumpet sound that was blown, the first strike from the enemy, the first declaration of the war of war came in a form of one single question. And that question is, did God really say? That question that began in the garden continues throughout history. If you, if you ever read through the Bible, you know that that's a common phrase. Even if it's not exactly the same word, the idea is there. When Noah was building the ark, people were asking, well, did God really say that he's going to flood the world? When you read the Exodus, when Pharaoh was talking with Moses, you get the idea that he was asking, he was saying no to Pharaoh because he was asking, he was saying no to God because he was asking, did God really say that I need to let God's people go? Every opposition against God begins with this question Did God really say? And this goes even to our modern context, does it not? Did God really say that I have to treat people with a different skin color with the same love? that we have for the ones that are, are our same colors as us? Did God really say that marriage is between a man and a woman? Did God really say that I cannot have sex with whomever I want or whoever makes me happy? Did God really say? And this is a question that you and I have to answer. In fact, if you ask yourself, how would you answer these types of questions? How would you do it? The worst thing that you can do is to compromise. The worst thing that you can do is to give up your post and let false teachers come in. Because we, as Christians, are soldiers for the truth. The world tries to find truth in everywhere except the place that they need to look. The world tries to find places and they look for in all the wrong places. The only place that they can find truth is in God's word. And the truth that's revealed in God's word will set them free. But yet they refuse to seek truth from Scripture. Ever since the fall, the struggle between obeying God and disobeying God has become the normal struggle, a normal part of everyday life. The spiritual warfare will not end until Christ reigns and every knee will bow. And by then, everyone will know the truth. Now, to be honest, I know that this church is really well taught. If the Pope came in the door right now with his colorful hat and his long robe and tells everyone, you need to come and go come back to the Roman Catholic Church, I doubt that most of you would think, oh yeah, of course, yeah, I've been lost this whole time. Or if a monk came back in here, if a monk came in and said, hey, uh, nice building, but you guys need to come and join Buddhism. I highly doubt that most of you will actually think to leave Christianity for a false religion. 
However, what I am aware of, and this is something every pastor struggles with and every pastor fear, is that false teacher isn't coming from the outside, but from within. It's the, it's the people that know truth, that distorts truth, that become the false teachers that we have to combat against. That is what every faithful preacher and leader of the church is afraid of. We are afraid for those that are in the church that will come and teach false doctrine. That's why God has raised up different people to contend for the faith. God will continue to raise up different people to defend truth. And in this day and age, we must be a church that's willing to contend for truth. In order to answer that question, did God really say we must be willing to contend? And Jude in this in verse 3 and 4, is going to instruct us to contend for the faith. In light of what we've learned last week, that we are, we are called, we are beloved, and we are kept in Christ, that, we need to, that these attributes need to be multiplied in the way that we confront false teachers, we need to go and contend for the faith. And this first, our two-point outline will be the call to contend and the reason to contend. Whether well, it is, is a literal false teacher that's coming into the church or a false teacher that's from inside the church, we must be willing to contend for the faith. So with that said, let's look at our first point this morning, the call to contend. Notice in the beginning of verse 3, it has the word beloved. This is an allusion back to what we learned last week, that if you call yourself a Christian, if you've given your life to the Lord, you are loved by God. And you understand that when you look at a fellow believer in the church, they are, they are a child of God, and they should be precious in your eyes as well. That even if that brother and sister sins against you, they are still cherished. They are still your beloved. And Jude begins that way. He calls them beloved because these are the people that have gave up everything to follow Christ. These are the people that are loved by God, and they share the same love for God, and that's why, they call, that's why Jude calls them beloved. Notice he writes, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, it seems to indicate that Jude wanted to fellowship with them. Perhaps the original letter was supposed to be something about how the Lord has helped him be a stronger evangelist, or he's asking them, what has the Lord taught you? It was supposed to be something that talked about their common salvation. But instead, because of the Holy Spirit working in Jude's heart, knowing that he needs to go and, and warn the church, he decides to change the topic. This is like similar to when Paul wrote the letters to the Galatians. If you, if you compare Galatians to the rest of his epistles, it just goes straight to the point. He doesn't have the same type of greeting because there is, there is something urgent at hand. And in this case, Jude knows that there are false teachers among them, and he needs to write to them about them. This is urgent to Jude because when there's false teacher, inevitably people will leave the faith. And he loves them too much for that to continue going on, to have that to continue to go on. There's something that urgent that came. And notice he write, I felt the necessity to write to you. It was something that's very crucial. He was moved to the point where he was distressed. He wanted to write this letter appealing to them. This word appealing is an urgent call for someone to take your side. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 14, 36. When there was that sick person that was 
that was appealing that if he can just touch the robe of Jesus, that he would be healed. He was appealing to be able to be close to Jesus so that he can be healed. This is the same word that is used. And Judas telling them that he's appealing to them, begging them to contend for the faith. Judas is aware of the threat, and he's urging them, pleading with them to take his side on this matter. There's a great threat that needs to be addressed. It's in light of that threat, he pleads with them. He begs them to contend for the faith. Jews' love for Jesus caused them to contend for the faith. And he's calling others who love Jesus Christ to contend for the faith. Christians who love God will contend for the faith. There's no option. It's not something that we can just choose. This is, this is our, our calling. Jude felt it necessary to warn them by writing this letter to them. This is really a directive not just to their church, but to us as well. It is a burden for all leaders to warn the coming threats that is or already at the church. Jude tells them to contend earnestly for the faith. This word contend is a very strong word. The, the, the word here means to agonize. It is often used in terms of wrestling. It is a very uh, intense word. This idea that you're, you're fighting, you want to win. It's going to be difficult. There will be moments where you'll be slipping back and forth, but you want to contend agonizing for the truth. And this is what Christians should be known as because even in this, when, when Jews writing this, this is in the perfect tense, meaning that this is a normal attribute of a Christian life. This isn't to say that we're argumentative or combative, but we do it with love. And notice that he's contending for the faith. It's the faith, not a faith. It's not some general idea that you're supposed to defend for any and every false religion. There's only one faith that you need to defend, and it's the one that worships Jesus Christ as Lord. And if there's one thing in your life that you should go all out in, if there's one thing in your life that you'll exhaust yourself in, it should be contending for the faith. It doesn't matter what team wins. It doesn't matter your favorite sport teams or your hobby. These things are insignificant compared to Christ. The things that matter most to you should be your faith in the Lord. And if you look at Scripture, just throughout the entire Old Testament to the New Testament, all the people that have defended and raised and the Lord has raised up have loved the Lord and were willing to contend for the Lord. Later on, we're going to learn about a man named Enoch. Very little is known about him. All we know is that he is a preacher. And why did he preach to his generation? It's because he loved the Lord. Why did everyone like Noah and Moses, why did all of these uh, patriarchs and, the, and even the prophets, why do they defend God? Because they love God. Because they have a heart for the Lord. That's why they're willing to defend his honor and his name. Every one of us who claims to love Christ must contend for the faith. 1 Timothy 3.15 writes, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. 2 Timothy 2.24-26, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having held captive by him to do his will. So why do we contend for the faith? 
We contend for the faith, not because we want some sort of moral standing in our culture. You understand that the reason why we defend truth is not because we want the world to change so that life can be easier for us. We don't want to contend for the faith so the government will not take away our tax exemptions. We want to contend for the faith because it matters to us and because it glorifies God. We don't want to contend for the faith because we want to be liked by the culture. We don't want to, people, we don't want to just impose scripture so that people will treat us nicely. And we don't want to con- contend for the faith just to win an argument. There are some of those people here and even in the church that think that the, the sole purpose of their existence is just to win the argument. It's just to be proven right. That's not why we contend for the faith. We do it because when we see false doctrine, we understand that when they are worshiping, they are worshiping a false God if they hold to false doctrine. Getting doctrine wrong means that you're misrepresenting God. It's like if one day someone came up to me, let's say a new visitor comes up to me and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, and I introduce myself. It's like, oh, I'm Ray. It's like, oh, you're the husband of Kelly. I was like, yeah, that's, that, I am the husband of Kelly. And then this visitor comes and describes my wife and says, oh, she's that Hispanic lady that doesn't know how to cook, bake cookies, right? I'm like, no, that's not, my, that's not who my wife is. My wife is not Hispanic, and she can bake. <laughs> and then if this new visitor decides to just keep talking about things that are not even remotely close to my wife, even if, they call, even if this visitor calls her Kelly, that's not who my wife is. My wife is a Chinese lady that can bake. And, I, and the reason why is because I know my wife. I know every detail there is to know about my wife. So if someone goes and, and, and tells me something different, I, I'm going to defend that because that's not who she is. In the same way, many people can come and say, oh, oh, yeah, you're a Christian, right? Or you worship God. Oh, I worship God too. Isn't God the God that just accepts everyone? Like, well, no, God doesn't accept sin. So even if someone says something like similar but it's different in terms of the description, that doesn't mean that it's true. And perhaps, some, perhaps a reason why we can't defend or contend for the faith is because we don't have a clear picture of who Christ is. Perhaps whenever Christ is misrepresented in our lives, we allow it because we don't know who he is. Maybe our knowledge of God is so shallow that we end up drowning when we get hit by the wave of lies. We're constantly contending for someone way more valuable than anyone in this world. And every attack, every attack, no matter how big or small, is an attack on God's character and nature. When we talk about apologetics and evangelism, it is hard, okay? It is difficult. Even for people who have desire for it, even people who are gifted, it is difficult to defend for the faith. Sometimes there's just new arguments or new cults and we're not aware of them. But yet, we can overcome this fear and difficulty when we have a greater love for God. When we know and love our Heavenly Father more, we're willing to protect His name. The love of God will not only cause you to want to know Him, but proclaim Him, defend Him. Some doctrines, some attributes of God will take more out of you to defend, but it is worth it because God is worth it. When we know more about our Heavenly Father, we will know more truth, and truth will triumph. We have truth because we have the Scriptures. God has, in His sovereign plan, preserved the Scriptures for us, and we can know Him more. 
if God is the most valued, is, is, is the most cherished person in your life, would, what would you do to protect his name? If God is the one that you love the most, what would you do to protect his reputation? When we see people that live or think wrongly, understand that they are living and thinking wrongly about who our God is. Understand that when we are equipped for God, it is, we're equipped to contend for the faith. The reason why we have God's word is because other people in the past has passed it on to us. Notice that in Jude 3, he writes, which was once for all handed down to the saints. This was handed down. This idea of, of entrusting what you know to someone else. Anyone that received God's word only received it because they were entrusted with it. Someone in your life thought that you are someone worth trusting God's word to, and they taught you. And one way you contend for the faith is to teach others as well. God calls someone to salvation, and he feeds their soul with his word. And a faithful believer will go and entrust it to others. And this word faith here, it's not just some general, uh, it doesn't mean in terms of salvation. The term faith here means it refers to the traditional teachings that must be safeguarded. In, uh, it is our job as believers to go and defend God's word and to train other people to do so. 2 Timothy 2, 2 tells us to do exactly the same thing. You, you have to entrust the things that you know to other people so they can teach other people as well. And we must make a conscious effort in handling what was given to us. The torch must be passed down. That's why in verse 17 of Jude, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord. The things that were given to us, the things that we've learned, whether by preaching, whether by reading, whether in a small group or a Bible study, wherever we learn God's word, we are called to go and entrust it to other people because they were given to us. And those were passed down from the saints of old all the way down to us. We learn to pass it down, and we must guard it. We must guard it, and we must pass it down to future generations. Second Thessalonians 2.15 writes, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. God's word needs to be passed down. And you know, when we think of the game Telephone, you know, that, you know how the game where like, you just go in a circle and you, you whisper one thing to one ear of one person and it just keeps going around and by the end of it sounds drastically different? That's not how scripture is. Because we have God's word. We just pass God's word down to another person. God's word must be understood the way the original author intended. We, we pass not just what we know, but how to understand God's word. We teach them biblical principles. This is why this church teaches the way that we teach. We preach God's word in every, word, every verse, every chapter, in context, in the way that the author intended, and the way the original audience should receive it. This means that in reality, there is only one single meaning to every text. And we need to do our best to understand it, and even pass on to the next generation how to understand scripture. I'm so thankful that we have old church history books. Because we get, a, we get to see the fact that like these old Puritans, or the old reformers, or the early church, they, have, they hold to the same doctrines that we hold today. Things pertaining to salvation is exactly the same. What we learn and what we're teaching is the same for the last 
2,000 years or so. Faithful Christians keep God's word and they pass it down exactly the same as they received it. We don't add, we don't change, we don't erase or take away from Scripture. Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Proverbs 30, verse 6, Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be found a liar. Revelation twenty two nineteen, And if anyone takes away from the words of the, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life. We're not only called not to add to God's word, but also not to correct God's word either. Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver in a furnace on, on the earth, refined seven times. This idea here in the Psalms is saying that just like when you keep refining a metal over and over and over again, the, real, the, end, result, when the, the end result of the metal that has no impurities, that's how God's word is when it begins. God's word begins as absolutely pure, and you do not need to change it or correct it. Psalm 119, 160 reads, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinance is everlasting. Romans 7, 12. So then the law is holy, and the commandments is holy and righteous and good. God's word never changed, even if our culture changes. We persevere the truth, we preserve the truth by passing the truth down, uncorrupted and completely pure. This is what God intends for us Christians to do. We contend for the faith while we hand down God's word faithfully. We have been entrusted with the sacred word of God, and we must never pass anything but God's word down to future generations. That's how we contend for the faith. We're called to preserve God's word and to pass it on to future generations. Not only are we called to contend for the faith, but Jude also gives us the second reason, the second point, the, sec- the reason to contend for the faith. The second point, the reason to contend for the faith. Jude explains why we must contend for the faith. Look at verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's really interesting just by a quick observation that this is the mark and the life of a false teacher, that they creep in slowly. They, they creep in unnoticed. And then they abuse the grace of God by, by promoting sin And then inevitably, they deny our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the reason, because the reason why we need to contend for for the faith is for two reasons. One is because it misrepresents God, and two, because it turns people away, and that leads to hell. Jude explains, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. This is not not specific on who the person may be or the group of people that are there. But the reality is that the the church may not know, but the Lord knows. Jude knows that there are false teachers that have infiltrated the church. And this is this term crept in, or certain person have crept in. It's supposed to be derogatory. It means that there's they're sneaking in, that there's there are people that should 
that do not hold to God's word, and they've snuck into the church. Imagine if this word was read out loud, if this letter was read out loud, that there were people that, that heard it, and they'll think to themselves, oh, they, I, I've been identified. But yet that doesn't mean that they repent. Some people have crept in, know God's word, and they're staying, and they're presently still in the church. These false teachers try to hide their motives, but God knows. And the reason why they're creeping in is because they, it implies that they are hiding something. Because if they are genuinely saved, they can just go into a church with a clear conscience. But because they're hiding something, that they have to slowly creep into the church. The greatest danger, as I mentioned earlier, to the church is from within the church. The greatest threat is actually not from people outside the church, but from inside, those who are in the church. Again, it's obvious that people outside the atheists and the different religions that want to go against us, we know for a fact that they do not like us. And they want to, we, we know the fact that they're actually against truth. But, but how does it happen that false teacher could come within the church? Like, how, how, what, what is it that happens that, that we do or don't do that allows false teacher to come from within? I have five. Uh, Five, five ideas of why I think false teachers creep into the church. First reason on how false teachers creep in is because they forget Jesus. Oftentimes, false teachers or false teachings creep into the church because people in the church have forgot Jesus. How? How is it that they forget? Well, sometimes it could be they're too busy, whether it's with work or with school or with their family or even with ministry itself. And all of these things are not bad but sometimes because of all of the, the busyness in our lives that we forget to devote our own lives to studying God's word and to pray. And because of that, we, we lose discernment. We lose the, the edge that we used to have. And we end up forgetting God. And because of that, false teachers will just come in and we won't even notice. Sometimes when a false teacher comes in, we are dull to scripture they will teach something wrong, teach something unorthodox, and they'll just, we, we may not even notice it. Don't forget Jesus, because when you forget Jesus, you lose discernment. And when you lose discernment, false teachers and teachings can be right in front of you, and you will not even notice. Not only do some people forget Jesus, sometimes people tolerate sin. Another way false teachers come in is when they tolerate sin. Our culture loves this word tolerance. In fact, the word tolerance has changed since I was in high school. Ten years ago, when I was in high school, the word tolerant meant that you guys can actually have two opposing views and still be okay with one another. You guys, even though you have different opposing views, whether you're atheist or believer, you can still be in the same room together. You can still respect one another, even though you have different views. Understand that when the world uses the word tolerance today, that's not what they mean. Understand that when the world talks about tolerance, they're actually asking us to be silent and to be quiet. They're asking us not for unity, but conformity to the world's standards. And we cannot tolerate sin no matter how much pressure we receive from the outside. I have heard so many Christians in the church who have used secular reasonings to deny the Bible. And it's always because of a sin issue. You know, I've yet to hear someone to say, oh, I deny the fact that Jesus loves me or, or, or the Lord will bless me. 
They, they will receive all the good things. They look at the, the scriptures, and they find all the good things, and then they, they accept those. But when it comes to sin, that's when they say, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to us today. We must never tolerate sin. Because when sin happens, false teachers will rise. We must be willing to confront sin. Galatians 5.9 tells us that a little leavens, leavens the whole lump of dough. False teachers must be confronted. We must not tolerate sin, but we must remove those type of teachers. If our church wants to glorify God the most, we must never tolerate sin on the inside. Not only do people forget Jesus and tolerate sin, but sometimes false teachers come in because they choose not to confront error. They choose not to confront sin. They allow false, these, te- these false teachers creep in the church when we, are, when we fail to confront sin. It's essentially turning a blind eye to sin. It's a, re- it's a refusal to call sin, sin. Doctrine and moral, morality go hand in hand. And if you refuse to confront false living, you're actually refusing to confront false doctrine. Some may not want to confront sin because they're trying to protect themselves. You know, it's uncomfortable. I don't want to be known as that mean person that confronts sin. Yet you care more about your own comfort than the purity of the church. You care more about yourself than you do the glory of God. Others refuse to confront sin because the person that is in sin are useful in ministry. Because, oh, this person's a gifted teacher. This is, this is a good administrator. This person is faithful. This person always shows up. Or, or what's worth. This is, all, this is the only person that we have that could do this ministry. My question to that is, what matters most to you? Does the purity of the church matter more to you than the function of the church? Think about it in the book of Acts. When Ananias and Sapphira sinned against God and then they were struck down, the church actually grew. Because the purity of the church is what causes true church growth. And we must never allow sin, we, just, we must never turn a blind eye to sin just because a person is useful in ministry. Some refuse to confront sin because they don't love. It's, it's rather sickening when you think about it. When you see someone running headlong into sin, and instead of reaching and trying to con- pull them back from sin, you just let them go. That is the most unloving thing that we can do as a church when we let someone go, run into sin. You see someone walking into destructions, and you just allow it to happen. That is completely unloving for us. We must be willing to confront sin because that is the most loving thing to do. When you confront doctrinal or moral sin, you have, the best, you have their best interests in mind because you truly do love them. Those who have or will be confronted, know this, that those people who confront you for your sin truly loves you. Thank God for those people that have the courage to go and point out sin in your life because they're looking at your blind spots. They're covering things that you're not seeing. They truly have a heart for you. And even though it hurts, they do it because they love you. And we need more men and women like that, who people who are willing to confront sin because they have a love for the Lord and a love for you. When you are being confronted with sin, you need to humble your own heart and thank these people. Proverbs 27, 6 tells us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. That person that confronts you, it's the instrument by which God is using to point you to holiness. 
If you, want to try, if you want to find true happiness, the only way it is found is in holiness. And God will use people to afflict you because the greatest, the greatest delight that you can ever have is in obedience to the Lord. Not only that, but some people, false teachers come into church when the church is spiritually apathetic. There are those who at one point were on fire for God. They studied God's word. They know God's word. They were vigilant at one point. But over time, they, became, they become jaded. They just don't care anymore. When people like that, whenever a false teacher comes in, they don't care. They're like, oh, we've seen this before. It'll just go away. False teachers and teachings will come into church quickly when those who are veterans of the faith, when those who've been in the church the longest, those who've been equipped the most, stop guarding the church when those people stop, false teachers will come in. And all of us must continue to fight until the end. If you're an older saint here today, know that it is, you are a blessing to the church. You are a blessing to the church because you can help train young people to defend for the faith. And you younger people, understand that you will become those older people. Have an attitude of discipleship. Be willing to train others to defend for the faith. We must never be spiritually apathetic. We, we, the work is not done. False teachers don't quit, and neither should we. We must continue to fight back harder against false teaching and false doctrine. So for those who are spiritually apathetic now, my encouragement to you is to waken from your slumber. We are in a rescue mission. The war is won. Yes, Christ died for the sins, paid for everything, but the battle for the souls is not over yet. Not only do people become spiritually apathetic, but some people are just spiritually indifferent. Whereas spiritual apathetic are people that are moving at one point at a certain speed and is slowing down. Spiritual indifference is someone who's just, they're just not doing anything in general. Spiritual Apathetic is someone who, who's, who's, who's over time stopped caring, whereas an indifferent person doesn't even care to begin with. And someone who's spiritually indifferent, there's two kinds. There's those that are believers and there's non-believers. For the non-believers that fill our pews, who just come because they think, oh, this is a great place. There are nice people here. They have good food. They have nice worship. They have a good teaching. They're, it sounds entertaining. These people are indifferent because they are not believers. And if you are not a believer today, I would plead with you to come to know the Savior. That even if you're indifferent to God now, that will have an eternal consequence in your life. There are those in 2 Timothy 3, 7 that, that Tim, Paul writes, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if that's you, if you are one of those people who are spiritually indifferent now, I would plead with you to repent, to turn from that. Turn from your indifference to the Lord. And those who are saved, who are just disobedient for maybe the season of their life, they just don't have a view or they aren't willing to take a stand against anything. Understand that when you do that, false teachers will, will take advantage of that. They will take advantage of your indifference and they will pollute the church. If you look back at all five of these, you may notice that it sounds familiar, and they should, because all five of these are five of the seven churches in the book of Revelations. Revelation 2 and 3, it talks about these seven churches. Five of them are what I just described. They're real churches, and God is warning them that if you do not deal with sin, God will deal with you according to your sins. 
Ephesus was a church that forgot Jesus. Pergamum was the one who tolerated sin. Thyatira was the one who refused to confront error. Sardis was the one who was spiritually apathetic. And Laodicea was spiritually indifferent. And we can be like these churches if we allow sin into our, our midst. When we forget Jesus, when we tolerate sin, when we refuse to confront error, we become spiritually apathetic. And if we are spiritually indifferent, that's how false teachers come in. False teachers come into the church when we refuse to cherish Jesus. When, if Jesus doesn't matter to us, if Jesus is not the center of our hearts, we will allow these things to happen. When false teachers come in, when false teachers take the pulpit, they will pollute and distort the gospel. And when that happens, people will be led astray and they'll be, they will go headlong into hell. And that cannot happen. We must be willing to defend the faith because souls are at stake. Now, some of you may be a false teacher to, among our myths. You may think to yourself, well, I can get away with this. They can't catch me. Just know that the Lord has, has, has a special place for you. And how do I know that? Because look at the scriptures. Look at how Jude writes, who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. God knows. God identifies you and he has marked you for condemnation. God has, record, has a record of every false teacher from the garden all the way to today. And he knows every single lie that you've committed. Every single false doctrine. Every time you lead someone astray, God knows each and every single one of them. And you cannot get away with that. God will have his reckoning one day. And if you are that false teacher today, I plead with you too to repent. That this is a grace of God that you have an opportunity to turn from that. You will not get away with this. And I plead with you, turn from your errors. Again, doctrine and life go hand in hand. Don't think that since you haven't been punished at this moment, that means that God is okay with it. This is why Jude writes, ungodly person who turned the grace of God into licentiousness. There are people who, who crept into the church who thinks, well, if God loves me so much, I don't, why do I need to repent? If God died for my sins once and for all, why do I need to fight sin? And not only that, you start teaching other people that. Just because God is gracious to you, it does not mean that God allows you, allows you to sin. Graciousness is not an excuse to abuse it. Grace means that God is giving you time to repent. But that time is limited. This word licentiousness here. It's sexual sin. People assume that at the time that if God didn't strike me down for my sexual sin, that means God is okay with it. That since God hasn't evoked his wrath, then God is totally fine with it. If you think back, and even in our history, ever since the 70s, every single major issue is about sin in some capacity. Right? Everyone, some people say, some people promote divorce. Because they think, oh, I want to have sex with this other person. I don't like love my spouse anymore. I want to be with someone else. When it, when it goes about abortion, I want to sleep with whoever I want and not have any consequences for it. So people who say that for homosexuality, for adultery, for fornication, every major issue that has happened in the last 50 years revolve around licentiousness. And what's worse is that the church conforms to it. The church gives way to it. They allow it. They promote it. And when that happens... We lose our gospel influence, and the church, and these churches abuse God's grace. And we must not be that. We must not be a church that allows sin. We must contend for the faith, and we want to be a light to the world. You cannot claim to be a follower of Christ while holding on to sin. If you have a death grip on your sin, 
your sin will put you to death. No matter how or what false teachers may claim about sin, you must repent and turn from it. We must fight against sin because inevitably people will turn and deny Jesus. Look at the last phrase of verse 4. Denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The result of all false doctrine, all false living, is that they eventually will deny Jesus as the Lord and master. They are no longer mastered by Jesus, but they are mastered by sin. They no longer submit to the lordship of Christ, but they submit to the devil. They submit to their own flesh. It's the progression of all false teaching that they come into the church believing, making you believe that it is actually Christian. Then they use it for sin, and then they deny it. And we must safeguard the truth because people's souls are on the line. When people deny Jesus as Lord and Master, they are denying their only way of salvation. Imagine if it's your own child that's in a church like that, or your own family or loved one, people that you care about. If they are in a, a church that claims to, that Jesus is not the only way, you understand that should break your heart because they're denying the only way for them to be saved. They're receiving something that is a lie, and that's going to bring them to hell. As Christians, we are soldiers of Christ against the devil and all of their false teachers. It is a truth war, and we must continue fighting until Christ returns. That is the calling for us as Christians. When a person denies God is the only way, eventually they will deny God altogether. When they, deny, when they accept one sin, they'll eventually deny Christ altogether. Some of you today may be holding on to a pet sin, that you're nourishing it, coddling it, feeding it. And the danger is that there is never just one sin. There's never just this one sin that I can hold on to and still be a believer. That one sin that you commit can turn your heart away from the Lord. That one sin is the reason why sin entered into the world. And that one sin is why our Savior was nailed to the cross. Compromise never ends with one sin. I have been in the faith long enough to see and be heartbroken over all of my friends that deny the faith because of one sin. How many people have you known that say, if, as the Lord just give me this one thing, this materialism, if the Lord just gives me money, then I will accept him. Or what if someone in your life have come up to you and said, just allow me to be in this relationship with a non-believer. Just let me hold on to this. I will not deny Jesus. Inevitably, they will deny Jesus. They will. There's never, it's never just one sin. That one sin can kill you. If, it's, if that is you today, in the name of our only master, Lord Jesus Christ, please repent. Let go of that sin. Cut that off from your life. Don't toy with sin because sin will play you. And when it does, you'll be ensnared by the devil and you'll become an apostate. John Owen said it this way. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. As a way of closing, we must remember to answer the call to contend for the faith. And that the reason why we contend for the faith is because God's name and reputation is on the line, and because other people who, if they buy into false teaching, will deny our Lord and Savior. We must be willing to agonize for the truth. We must be willing to fight for truth. Next week, we will look at 
the, the, the fate of apostasy, people who held on to that one sin, people who decide, well, this is just the one sin I'm going to hold on to. There is a warning and a judgment for that. And if there's any one of you now that are holding on to sin, I, I, would, I would plead with you to repent now. Don't wait till next week to repent. But repent today. Know that God is gracious to forgive you. No matter what, how long you've held that sin, God is willing to forgive you. Turn from your sin today. Let's pray. Lord, there are sadly always those who hold on to lies and false teaching. I ask that as we learn from your word this morning, that we're willing to continue to contend for the faith. For those of us who struggle with contending for the faith, will you give us the grace to do so? We need you to give us both the power and convictions to refute error and to correct those that do not know you. Lord, we want the world to know who you are, not what the flesh tells tells them. We ask that the world may come to know you and to see how great and beautiful you are. Give us the grace this week to basically live in such a way that is pleasing to you. May we walk in a manner that's worthy before your eyes. And may we also contend earnestly for the faith. In your son's name I pray. Amen.